Welcome to On Air, a podcast from the Air community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information, please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of On Air. Welcome to the 14th episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. Today we will discuss data protection with Alexander Bernier from the Center of Genomics and Policy at McGill University. Hello, Alex. Hi, thank you guys for having me. The podcast is hosted by me, Ulrich Staubel. And me, Cheng Ding. Hello, everyone, and welcome. So Alex, our audience is primarily made up of mostly wet lab and dry lab scientists working in the adaptive immune receptor repertoire field, dealing mostly with human T-cell and B-cell receptor sequences, otherwise known as the air sequences. I assume like many of them, similar to me, prior to chatting with you earlier in the year, I've never thought about the legal implications of public air data repositories, such as data protection, data privacy, or even IP. But before we get into that, can you provide some background about sort of your career path, how you even got interested in genomics policy and sort of, you know, a little bit about sort of where you see the biggest topics that might be important for the AIR community? So I guess first I'll start with how I got involved in the AIR community and in the data protection side of health policy at all. Um, I don't actually have a background in the sciences. And so this is something that I actually just stumbled into after finishing law school. I originally studied law and then I'd been looking for something to do when I finished law school that was maybe a little bit different than a, you know, a traditional sort of litigation or, or you know, corporate career. Um, and I so happened to, you know, find a job posting in a policy center that actually the Center of Genomics and Policy and that led me to working a lot on data protection. When I started doing that, it was in the um, you know 2016 and 2018, and so that was when people had finished drafting GDPR, which is this big omnibus data privacy law in the EU, and it hadn't been implemented yet. And because of that, a lot of large EU to Canada, basically these you know data infrastructure projects, so these large scale transnational consortia, were starting to uh, ingest data, were starting to operate, and then they had this new privacy law that they needed to comply with. And so I sort of stumbled into this in a role that was a little bit between the bioethics side of things, the engineering slash technical side of things, and then the, the more compliance legal side of things, right as that whole field was starting to get a lot more prominent and impactful. In terms of the actual day-to-day -day of the work, most of what I do is looking at proposed, uh, you know, technical designs for basically a, you know, some kind of data infrastructure. So maybe a, a you know, a data discovery platform or a platform where really uh, scientists will generate basically patient level or research participant level data and make it available in a controlled way to downstream researchers. So really, you know, the role consists in looking at those designs 
looking at different bioethics requirements, different legal requirements, and seeing how it all fits together, and then working across the different teams, be they legal, technical, or on the more ethics public policy side, and really coming up with one plan for an infrastructure, even though it might span across different legal regimes, different jurisdictions. And I'd say some of the, you know, the biggest challenges in in the future and in, in that particular respect are that a lot of the design of these infrastructures are starting to be, you know, built around the legal requirements. So that is, it's the, you know, it's really the legal limitations in data sharing that are guiding the way that scientists are choosing to design, you know, their own platforms for sharing data. So for instance, you might see uh, researchers opt to, to implement what we call a federated analysis platform, which, which basically means that they're sharing, you know, analysis results at query level. So basically they're letting other researchers query their infrastructure, but they're not releasing the underlying data that goes into a particular analysis. Um, we're starting to see those decisions be made rather than, you know, more open sharing or access to downstream data, not necessarily for purely technical or scientific reasons, but rather because that's the easiest way to comply with the law or because there's fears of regulatory non-compliance. So to sum that all up, we seem to be seeing, you know, a lot of cases where it's the regulatory requirements that are guiding scientific decision-making platform design at the scientific level. So I think there's a need for public policy standards to really change, to be clarified, to give scientists basically a, you know, a broader range of different designs that they could implement, you know, relative to basically their technical needs rather than compliance really leading the structure of these platforms. Is this uh, that the legal requirements are guiding the platforms? Is this a recent development or was it always like this? So that's an interesting question. What I would say is that, you know, there's always been a give and take between basically, you know, technical decisions that, that PIs, that, that researchers make on the one hand, and, you know, the basically broad kind of, you know, governing directives that you might find in, in bioethics requirements in law. And I, I think to some degree, there's always been, you know, a major role for for ethics, for law in guiding the design of basically, you know, downstream use of you know, biological data, tissue samples. So to give one tangible example of that, I mean, you know, we've always seen basically PIs and research ethics committees invest in the design of consent forms, right? So basically consent forms that research participants will sign that determine what can be done with their data. And then those, uh, you know, the, the, the rules that are established in those consent forms will really determine what can be done with the data in the future. Um, and in that respect, I think it's, you know, it's fair to say that, that ethics, the law have always basically guided the way that information can be used. Another big example is intellectual property rights. I mean, often you'll see very intentional decisions made on the part of research universities or groups of researchers to either, you know, exert certain control, you know, of the downstream use of their information through IP rights. So for instance, put in place requirements to give attribution or put in place requirements to collaborate with existing researchers, embargo periods, things like that. And, you know, IP rights act as one of the, the many sticks that, 
make people respect those. So of course, there's, you know, there's a culture of scientific integrity, but bigger and broader than that, compliance with IP rights that are, you know, that lie in research data sets or in, you know, publications, what have you, have always been used uh, to govern what can be done with information. I think the big change in this, you know, data protection era that, that we're living in right now, and really since that 2016-2018 period where the European Union did enact very strong data protection laws, is that historically the actors that had the final say in, you know, what the legal requirements were in the use of information tended to be either research ethics committees working in collaboration with research participants or else, you know, research organizations that, that generated data. So things like technology transfer offices. And there, these were systems of, I mean, obviously there was, you know, public state law underpinning all of this, but these were very flexible systems that were left at the disposal of research participants or of, you know, organizations involved in leading and conducting research. In, you know, this era of data protection, this is a central legislative document. It's a little bit like a constitution that puts very strong binding requirements, you know, as to how information can and can't be used that are centrally mandated, that are, you know, centrally basically articulated by national supervisory authorities. So these, you know, central regulators and by the text of the law. And so it becomes a lot harder for researchers to get feedback as to, you know, whether or not the way that they're sharing and using data is compliant with the law. And so that can lead either to regulators themselves being overwhelmed with, you know, demands from organizations that are trying to comply to understand, look, we're trying to respect privacy rights. We're trying to share data in a way that's secure, that's non-identifiable, uh, that's proportionate. And it can lead to a lack of feedback. And, you know, that can itself prompt either conservatism. So basically saying, look, we're going to restrict and limit our data sharing because we're afraid of, you know, non-compliance with this broader body of law that we don't necessarily have as much capacity to interface with and to really, you know, get feedback on, or alternatively for really designs such as these, you know, federated decentralized analysis platforms sort of leading the way in compliance and really, you know, the idea being we're going to design our data sharing platforms to mitigate our compliance risk as much as we can because we don't necessarily have the resources needed to get feedback from the regulator on whether what we're doing is compliant. So I think it's structurally the law is different than anything we've seen before. And so the responses that, you know, researchers, research organizations have had are different and really trend towards, uh, you know, protecting their own interests first approach to compliance, as opposed to really trying to carve that perfect balance between private rights and information on the one hand, you know, be they individual privacy rights or IP rights, and really this idea of having, you know, a public information commons that's open on the other hand. So for the GDPR or the General Data Protection Regulation, that's that came out of the EU, right? And and so is there an equivalent of that in the US or sort of, I think you spoke a little bit about the legal jurisdictions and whatnot. And could you kind of maybe take a step back and explain that complexity? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about, you know, jurisdiction, it's a concept that's really closely tied to, you know, a particular nation or even a particular, be it, you know, a province, a state, prefecture that's 
you know, within a nation. And essentially the idea is there's a number of different governments that operate either at the national level, the subnational level, so here provinces, states, that sort of thing, or the supranational level. So here we can think of, you know, the European Union as a classic example. And each of these has some flexibility to adopt their own privacy laws or, you know, other forms of regulation that basically govern what you can do with research data. Now, one thing we're seeing with data protection a lot recently, and of course, you know, it's important to remember that data protection is not a new phenomenon. The OECD privacy guidelines that sort of, you know, initiated this push to, to legislate in the, in the sphere of privacy and data protection dates back to 1980. There's privacy laws that, you know, predate that as well. In, in the United States, there's constitutional recognition of this privacy right that predates those laws as well. And then, you know, of course, there's that flagship first data protection law that, that was implemented in the mid-90s in the European Union, the Data Protection Directive. So, you know, one thing we'd say there is when we talk about this in being a new phenomenon, it really is a renewed interest in this legislation and specifically a renewed interest in building out enforcement capability and strong, you know, things like fines and, and, and consequences for non-compliance. So when we talk about this as a novelty, it's a novelty in the sense that states are giving these laws teeth now in a way that maybe they weren't in the past. And then if we take a step back and we look, you know, back at this concept of jurisdiction, when we think about basically this, you know, information commons and these, you know, biomedical research consortia, they're highly decentralized. So essentially, you know, what you'll often see is a group of research universities that have, you know, sometimes private sector partners as well, that have common research interests and that will basically decide to explore one shared research question together. And they will often be spread across a large territory. And that, that occurs for a number of reasons. One of them being that there is research interest in collecting data from, say, different populations. So for instance, in, in, you know, in comparing different member states in the EU, or in looking at, you know, one particular space, maybe rare disease or, you know, cancer or what have you, across populations that are, you know, disparate, basically across the whole world. That could be because you're trying to build, you know, say a cohort that's large enough to produce statistically significant research. And so you really do need a large international population to feed into that research. Or it, you know, it could simply because you really, you know, you're interested in comparing different geographies. So for instance, you might want to compare and, you know, environmental or, or population health in say Canada and the European Union. And then you can really get insights into things like whether genetic or environmental factors might explain differences in, in, in population outcomes. So to make a long story short, these consortia have always been constructed on decentralized, on, you know, very international lines. Now, this concept of, of jurisdiction really because states are legislating at the local level, either at the level of the national state or at the level of the province, what have you, they tend to design laws that are similar but different from one another and that are applicable within one of these particular you know, territories. Uh, and, and those differences, some of them you know, creep into the laws unintentionally, as in legislators feel pressure to enact a law in a particular space to show that they're doing something um, and really to, you know, make sure that their citizens have access to 
privacy rights, things like that, that are starting to be the norm everywhere. And so sometimes they will legislate quickly and you'll see these subtle differences between national and subnational privacy laws creep into the law. Other times they will reflect, um, you know, very serious policy differences and, you know, different policy preferences between different states, different governments. So for instance, yeah, a classic example of that, if you look at, you know, data protection laws in the United States and the European Union, they're quite different from one another. The, um, the U.S. tends to take an, an approach to privacy that makes it very sector specific and very exceptional. So in the sense that, you know, privacy rights arise in particular contexts. You have a, you know, a contextualizing privacy right in your health information. When you enter into a consumer relationship, you know, you gain access to certain privacy guarantees because of that consumer relationship. Whereas in the European Union, it's a much more generous framework that's looking to regulate all of the different uses of information that uh, either state actors or commercial actors might be making and that, you know, because of the, the basically the, the, the power relationship and, you know, basically the commitment, if you will, to this almost constitutional right to uh, data protection that, that's part of the way EU conceptualizes it. And so, you know, what that leads to is essentially a mix of very different laws that arise across different jurisdictions, meaning that, you know, whereas we might want to scale health consortia across a large number of different jurisdictions, different places, and that, you know, the, the technical design that's intended across a number of different jurisdictions might be identical, the privacy regulations are quite different from one place to another. And so that means that it's necessary to look at this, you know, it's often necessary to look at one central design for a data sharing consortium for a data sharing platform in the health sector and say, you know, is it possible to implement this one shared vision across a large number of different territories? To understand correctly, we have to, if there is a study that collects data in different continents, the study needs to deal with different data protection laws? That's absolutely correct. To say it in, in about a few words, you'd basically need to look at your intended study and localize it, if you will, to each of the different privacy requirements. And those can set different rules for things like whether or not data is allowed to flow internationally, how much it needs to be de-identified. So basically, you know, how much you might need to reduce the identifiable information in it in order to make it possible to share it across countries. Um, even what you'd need to put in your informed consent form. So the kinds of information you need to provide to an individual, uh, things like that. So that kind of, I guess, leads me to my second question around this. So you use data protection, or at least when you were talking, and, and maybe it was my misinterpretation, but sort of data protection and privacy kind of interchangeably. And, and so then I'm wondering, is data protection basically dependent on whether that data has identifiable individual information? And so if it doesn't have identifiable information, then are there different types of data, like regulated versus unregulated? So what I'd say is to, to that second point, yeah, identifiability is basically, a, it's a legal concept that's used as the, a litmus test to distinguish information that's subject to data privacy, data protection laws versus 
information that you know doesn't basically create a large enough privacy risk to individuals to be regulated. And so that information's use will be unregulated. So basically in you know designing platform to share information further. So you might imagine, you know, one of these big controlled access databases that contains genetic information and clinical information about a particular population. You can think of things like UK Biobank or um, the International Cancer Genome Consortium infrastructures like that. There's a trade-off to be made. On the one hand, researchers might say, we're going to anonymize this information and then that way we can release it in full public access or else we won't anonymize the information. We'll keep it, you know, richer and more scientifically useful. And if that's done, then it typically needs to be shared in what's called controlled access. So basically because individuals have these remaining data protection rights in that information, and it, you know, it doesn't just flow from data protection law. This, this also, these requirements also flow from basically national biomedical research ethics requirements. So these ethics guidelines that that bind researchers, you know, then that data needs to be shared through controlled access. And that would mean that downstream users would need to apply for access to that data, would need to essentially use this big search engine to find data that's, you know, of particular relevance to their research purposes. And it's it's not incredibly onerous, but it, you know, it does mean that their research can be slowed by years at a time, or that they might simply, you know, not have the ability to use as large a data set as they might like. And then on, on the side of the infrastructure, you know, it, it would basically mean that they need to invest considerable resources in ensuring that they have, you know, the funds and the personnel to maintain these controlled repositories that they're they're deciding who can access the data. So that's the challenge that, you know, identifiability creates. And then as to basically your earlier question about what is identifiability exactly, how does the law use this concept? Different laws, different countries will set different thresholds for identifiability based on what kind of privacy risk they view as uh, as acceptable. So traditionally, for instance, in the United States, this is under HIPAA, their big sort of uh, privacy framework for the health sector. Generally speaking, data won't be considered identifiable anymore, won't be considered regulated. If a set of 18 listed identifiers, things like, you know, name, and, and there's basically a, a list of, of what those identifiers are, if these 18 identifiers are removed from the data set. So it's a one-size-fits-all approach. It's not looking to really capture basically a context-specific assessment of the real risk associated to that data. So it's easier to comply with, but some might say that it's a little bit a lighter touch regulatory approach than some of the stricter approaches. Whereas in jurisdictions like Canada and the European Union, you see really identifiability is assessed in a contextual way. So you might look at what the real risk of a person being re-identified from the use of their data is relative to, you know, the elements that are intrinsic to the data. So if there's, you know, a genomic sequence, a name, gender, age, ethnicity, things like that. And then also relative to, you know, some more subjective considerations. So basically things like how the data is being held, you know, is it made accessible in a very rigorously controlled database? Are there 
training procedures in place to make sure that people who use the information know not to maybe, you know, I don't know, download it onto their laptop, put it on a USB stick and hand it to their friend. And then also relative to, you know, interestingly enough, the incentives to even try and re-identify somebody. So here we can think of things like, is the data valuable? Is it, you know, do you need very deep expert and technical knowledge to re-identify a person? So those are basically the different policy approaches that are being taken. Now, one of the big challenges that come from that is that these more contextual approaches, I think, are in many ways correct. You know, they, they really do make researchers perform a context-specific assessment of, of the privacy risks that they're creating and, and force them to, you know, reason through those and, and, and basically internalize those risks, find strategies to mitigate them. But because they're articulated in such contextual language, it can often mean that it's very difficult to know what side of the identifiable, non-identifiable threshold you fall. And it leaves a lot of jurisdictions discretion for regulators to come in and second guess the decisions of researchers, which is, of course, an important accountability mechanism, but it does make it harder for researchers to know if, if they're compliant or not. I was wondering, how does the degree of or the amount of work that is needed to identify a person based on some information, some data in a repository? So I'm thinking air sequences, for instance, right? You will not just, just by looking at the sequences, you will not be able to identify a person. You would have to go run around and sequence a lot of people to identify the exact person that the original sample came from. How does... Does this play a role, the amount of work you have to do to identify a person? So, yes, it does. In the European Union, the legal test actually bakes that requirement right into the legal definition. So that is considered identifiable if there's what they call a means reasonably likely to be used of re-identifying an individual. And here it's, you know, it's all about that means reasonably likely to be used. So first of all, is there a way of re-identifying them? And then if yes... In the circumstances, is it anticipated that it's actually going to happen? And the, the test is is similar in Canada. In Canada, they talk about a serious possibility. But to speak to that, essentially, in de-identifying information, you know, oftentimes people will become very alarmed by things like, say, genomic information, right? Because it's, you know, a genomic sequence is unique to a particular individual. Whereas, you know, if you think about some, you know, more basic clinical data that has individual identifiers associated to it, you might think of something with, you know, age, gender, uh, profession, basically these, you know, just tables of data that give out relatively or, you know, compared to genetic information, at least harmless information keyed only to a small number of demographic identifiers. Uh, the intuitive take is that the genomic information is very, very high risk. And the, you know, this demographically identified clinical data is much lower risk. That's sort of the intuitive take. But if we, you know, go back to this test, Ulrich, that you, that, you know, that you just asked about, you might imagine that actually it's much easier to get back to information that has things like profession, gender, ethnicity, you know, keyed to it. It's much easier to re-identify those people because you can go looking through all kinds of public records to get an idea of who somebody might be. And of course, there's that famous case of um, of Latanya Sweeney, who's a who's a researcher at, at at MIT, if memory serves, who had actually sort of you know made an example out of uh, one of these 
you know, public releases of health data. So essentially, you know, if I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly, Governor William Weld had released a large number of, I can't remember if they were from hospitals or if they were from insurance, but basically medical records related to a large number of individuals. And so this researcher, Latanya Sweeney, showed that there was a privacy risk there by actually finding the governor's own health records within those databases, cross-referencing them with his you know, publicly filed voter information and saying, look, I found your health record. And there wasn't, you know, the information there was rather innocuous, right? You're looking at these small scale demographic identifiers, whereas now we're seeing more and more genomic databases proliferate. And so there's this, you know, huge public anxiety about whether this is going to create a privacy risks. But, you know, in actuality, it, it might be these lower hanging fruit that create a greater privacy risk for the simple reason that in releasing small amounts of genomic information, it's not likely that there's secondary information that can meaningfully be used to re-identify a person. And especially where, you know, it's really held under lock and key and it would take an expert a lot of work to link together two identities, you know, all the more reason to think that that information might actually be lower risk uh, lower identifiability. Uh, universities and regulators are actually starting to draft out methodologies for assessing whether your data should be considered identifiable or not. So in Canada, the privacy commissioner of the province of Ontario has been extremely prolific in drafting these up. And essentially, they make you look at things like the incentives people might have to re-identify and even, you know, basically putting together these statistical tests to see how many people, a particular record in your database could relate back to, right? So basically putting together these statistical tests that say, okay, you have some, you know, information on hand. If you limit yourself to those few identifying features that create major privacy risks, how many other people in this same database share the same features? So how many people have the same combination of say age, gender, profession, diagnosis, and then really coming up with these rather quantitative estimates of privacy risk. And of course, there's no way of getting it, you know, perfect. This is inherently a subjective assessment. And it's, it's really hard to know, you know, what information about a second, uh, about a particular individual might re- realistically be available in the wild, or even how hard someone would really work to try and re-identify a person. But, you know, it, it, it at least creates a method of assessing privacy risk and then scoping your, your compliance efforts, your, your efforts to reduce privacy risk to those, you know, highest risk situations. So I was trying to think of like a, maybe a parallel example of air sequences. It's not genomic data, right? There is some, it is dynamic, right? Like if you take your own air sequence repertoire at any given point, it's influenced by the environment. It's highly mutational. And so how, do, and I was thinking maybe it could be similar to maybe like tumor genomics, right? Where the tumor itself is constantly evolving, but there could be some specificity to an individual. But the only way to confirm that would be then to resample that person's <laughs> tumor again. So there is, you know, that kind of barrier in terms of re-identifiability. Yeah, I guess, could you give some examples around if you're yeah, familiar with tumor genomics? So this isn't research that I've done myself, but I, you know, I did have some colleagues worked with in the past 
who had looked into identifiability risks in the context of, you know, tumor uh, genomic sequences. So basically, gosh, I, I think if I'm getting my terminology right, I'm, I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the term, but, you know, basically I think it's that somatic sequence, if I'm right, that's, you know, specific to the, to the tumor. And so they'd looked at that. They'd also looked at some use cases in epigenetics. And it's basically, as you're saying it, it's, you know, if you are releasing in a sort of one shot way, genomic information that's unique to a tumor or, you know, health information. So this ARC data that you're describing might fit that as well, that can't easily be mapped back to that person because it's dynamic. It's not permanent. There's good reason to believe that you wouldn't fall within this regulatory framework at all, right? In the sense that, you know, if you release a person's, a part of a person's, say, tumor, as a genomic sequence, you release it one time, this person isn't, you know, expected to be resampled in the future, then there's good reason to believe it wouldn't be identifiable. And I, and I think that there, the determining factor isn't, you know, you know, necessarily the how much of the underlying information about that person you're releasing, but really the frequency at which you're releasing information about a same person, right? So you might imagine that if a person's, and here I'm, I'm just, you know, sort of taking an, an educated guess, but, you know, the, the frequency with which a tumor genomic sequence, an IRR receptor uh, repertoire was released, if this was done frequently and systematically, you know, every few weeks, you might imagine that because there's so much information about a person being released in sequence, that you'd be able to go back and look at that information again and again and say, look, we've got these, you know, 10 different releases and we know that they all relate back to the same person. And then that's where an issue might crop up. And then in a more, I guess, sort of almost real world use case, um, one of the areas that's really hard to uh, reduce identifiability risk in is dynamic databases in, say, like an mHealth context, or if you basically have a, you know, a, a clinical database where really it's basically live, uh, it's updated live and it's, it's clinical data about, you know, a particular subset of patients or what have you, because, you know, you have so many different data points about a same individual that even if lots of the identifiers are scrubbed, uh, one person could basically look for changes in that database, whether it be at the individual level or at the aggregate level and basically pin multiple observations back to the same person in a way that you couldn't if you just took one sample from a person, you know, be it tumor, be it AR sequencing data, be it something else, and released it on a one-shot basis. And there what you're seeing is that, you know, in these contexts where you're really releasing lots of data or about a same person or about a same group of individuals, you're seeing a lot of need to invest in what would you call them? Almost these like really rigorous quantitative tests for privacy protection. So you, you've probably heard of methodologies like differential privacy, which are basically these technical mathematical guarantees that an individual can't be pinned back. An individual's identity or an individual's data can't be pinned back to statistical data. So basically that even if you're, you know, you're releasing multiple observations of the group, as its composition changes, you can't infer some information about a particular person. And that's done, you know, by really playing with the nature of the data that's released at the aggregate level. So that's done, you know, basically by saying, 
look, how much data in this larger set of observations meaningfully relates back to one person or could meaningfully relate back to one person? And how can we change the output, hopefully not too much so that it still stays useful to really eliminate those privacy risks? So I guess to speak to to your question, there's, you know, there's two big takeaways there. The first one is that, yeah, you can avoid identifiability risks more or less when you're releasing data that's dynamic in nature because you don't have that you know, ability to basically find two identifiers across two different use cases and confirm that they relate back to the same person. Uh, but then the second thing that you need to think about, it's not just whether the data is identifiable in the abstract, it's also whether you're making a lot of observations about one same individual or a same group of individuals. And, and if you are, then there might be a need to invest in very rigorous ways of ensuring privacy, uh, both at the individual level, but, but also at the group level. And when you say ensuring ways of privacy, it's, it's more of like operational mechanisms of compliance. So there's, I think there's two really big approaches that are becoming uh, commonplace. The first ones are organizational. So if you're building, you know, a database that's made to be useful for researchers, then you're looking at things like having, you know, basically coding the data at the outset and understanding, you know, which samples, which data sets relate to one individual. So, you know, you're not retaining your their identity, but you're, you're basically giving them a pseudonym. And then things like oversight mechanisms for downstream use, right? So basically having clear criteria for who can access the information, making sure that the people accessing the data are bona fide researchers or, you know, bona fide clinicians or what have you that really have a legitimate purpose to access that information. So you're reducing the privacy risk by putting in place governance. And the second one actually comes back to manipulating the data. And that's sort of that, you know, differential privacy use case that, that we talked about a little bit, you know, without delving too deep into the technical side of it, essentially, you know, the more people say, look, we want to release rich data about a group, about a particular person, we want to make this open to a wide group of people. What they'll try and bake in are basically search tools that let you look at the scientifically interesting features of the data. So you might, you know, you might have this big population and you might want to look and say, are there, and this is, I'm borrowing from the genetics context again, but, you know, are there rare alleles, rare genetic variants that are of interest to us within this wider group of participants? Or if we look at a clinical context, you know, how many individuals within this particular database received treatment XYZ? And then these technical controls are there to basically make sure that one person couldn't send a large number of strategically formulated queries to this wider platform to try and infer out private data about one person. So you might imagine, you know, just to give a lay example, if you had a large database of, say, income data, you might imagine that someone would systematically query the data about the average income in a particular state, a particular province, over time, in order to try and determine if specific very wealthy individuals had moved in and out of that state. So you might imagine, you know, if you know the income, the net worth of a particular, say, billionaire, that you could predict by how much the average income in that, that state, that province would change as they left. And then you could try and infer whether they were there or not. And in, you know, in the same way, you can imagine that happening with, if you know part of a person's genomic sequence, 
or if you know that a patient is receiving a particular drug with much greater frequency than the average, things like that. And so the second strategy, if you're not doing this, you know, by governing access to the individual level data, the second strategy is really to say what kind of technical controls can we integrate to a search platform to make sure that even if a malicious actor were to try and really tease out the identity of a person by looking very closely at the group level data, how can we change those queries? How can we you know, edit them a little bit to conceal a person's identity? With all of these data protection regulations, do you know of, of these specific issues that the air community is facing with their data? One thing I will say is that most of the work I've done with the air community has been closer to the field of intellectual property. So I haven't actually looked deeply at the data protection implications. But if we analogize, you know, if we look at some different communities and the issues that they've been facing, there have been a number of reports released by, you know, just basically the, these communities of researchers in the European Union. And of course, um, you know, this is being dovetailed in different jurisdictions that are implementing privacy regulations right now. And I think one of the big challenges is that, you know, if you think about research data and open science, there's two big values that are being pursued in building out basically studies that are available for other users. And the first is, you know, to, to really make data open, right? There's been a, you know, there's been a huge investment in open science infrastructure. You see it with this recent push to build a European open science cloud, to build a European health data space. There's this idea really of, of making the data as available to downstream users as possible. And so it's not clear how exactly to navigate the tension between making data really openly available. And this is not just, you know, this is not just a policy imperative that we're, that we're you know, societally interested in. It really is often a legal requirement. You know, things like the public sector information directive and the, the, the open data directive in, in the EU actually require the open release of publicly funded data for reasons related to open science and other. So it's not clear how to align these requirements with the requirement to preserve privacy as much as possible. And often there, there are trade-offs to be made between either information openness, so instead, in, you know, in the sense of basically making the data as easily accessible as possible, not limiting the categories of actors that can use the information, so not cutting out, you know, citizen scientists or researchers from the global south who might not have all of the resources needed to really, you know, for like fill out these long applications and, and demonstrate compliance with a number of you know security requirements, what have you. So this policy tension between keeping it secure, keeping it safe, and making it open. You know, a lot of the, the work in doing that is being shifted to research communities. And this works for large-scale research infrastructure projects, right? There's there's projects like you know the Human Cell Atlas, uh, UK Biobank, who have done a lot of really cutting-edge work in trying to navigate those standards. But I think the real difficulty is for smaller groups of researchers, you know, researchers that don't have access to this large-scale infrastructure of compliance specialists and you know just statisticians and what have you that can really make that case for optimal trade-offs between governance on the one hand and openness on the other. And I think that you know a shift that would be nice to see is significant investment A in building infrastructure in that respect. So really in giving smaller groups of researchers access to compliance professionals, access to, you know, methodologies and ways of 
you know, looking at the trade-offs between governance on the one hand and openness on the other, and also infrastructure to host their data. So for instance, you know, if you if governments were to invest in large-scale data repositories that had an indefinite duration and really were to, you know, basically provide some resources for the governance of that, you might see a lot of different communities aligned to the same standards. The other thing I'd say too is, you know, I think in these public interest contexts, open science, precision medicine, things like that, it would be very beneficial for regulators to take a not necessarily deferential approach towards researchers. I think, you know, there's historically a a lot of bad things that have happened from showing too much deference to experts, but at least an approach that, you know, is framed around sharing information across regulators and regulated parties and organically trying to find the best trade-off between information openness on the one hand and downstream access to information in protected, controlled ways on the other, rather than the policy position that's been taken right now, which is to put a lot of weight on the enforcement side of things and really, you know, make very strong asks in terms of getting privacy and data governance right on the first go. I think it's a, it's a learning process both for regulators and for regulated parties. And I do think we see, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it on that note, some regulators being very open to dialogue and experimentation with regulated parties. I think, for instance, you know, in the Netherlands, uh, the Dutch regulator has really set an example by being very open to dialogue with, you know, parties that are basically building out infrastructure for data sharing and also in, you know, releasing or, or at least approving a first draft code of conduct that would really specify some of these requirements for researchers. I mean, research is not limited, restricted to, you know, a single jurisdiction and trying to navigate open science across at a global level seems extremely complicated. And so is, but then it seems like the standards is, are, are, is on a global level, are people trying to, you know, create a, like a international shared regulation or do you anticipate in the future it's still going to be, you know, like the EU, Canada, US, and each country is going to keep having their own level of kind of that threshold data protection? Well, I'm personally kind of pessimistic on this front. I don't think that we're going to see a shared international standard anytime soon. The first reason for that is that, you know, the US, the EU, and other countries as well, but but mostly those two, you know, they are using this as basically, you know, a, a forum in which to argue for very different policy preferences, right? So they know that the American vision for data sharing and the EU vision for data sharing are very different. So, you know, national governments are using this to try and, you know, demonstrate, well, firstly, that they do have an important footprint in regulating this emergent policy space at the global level on the one hand, but also to try and, and, and broker, you know, compromises that, that basically privilege their vision. So that's the first issue. The second one is, you know, there has been a large push towards this idea of data sovereignty. So this idea that, you know, data should be controlled at the national level, that this is, these are policy preferences that should be developed at the national level and that other jurisdictions should respect the, you know, the, the, the policy preferences of particular governments in regulating how local data could be used, which I think is unfortunate because if you look, um, and of course I say unfortunate, but you know, it's, it's, it's obviously, it's a, it's a very sensitive issue both politically, but, but also, 
you know, in, in terms of making sure that people's rights and interests are privileged. But it is unfortunate in a certain sense in that, um, you know, data gains value from being reused, right? It's the, the, the some basically value that the data provides as an input to economic activity, to research, public health efforts, things like that is contingent on individuals reusing that information, adding value to it, combining it with other data sets, and even, you know, relying on specialized uh, service providers in other jurisdictions to analyze their data. So it's, you know, we can't, I don't think we can see, you know, the, the full plentiful use of information unless some form of international consensus as to how it can be used emerges. But at the same time, at the national level, regulators do have very strong incentives to set local rules for how that information can be used. And of course, you know, there are certain communities, you know, vulnerable communities. I mean, rare disease patients, indigenous populations are classical examples who have, you know, very legitimate claims to control the downstream use of their information and also to ensure um, that it is compliant with their own values and, and, and policy preferences. So I don't. I think it is a thorny issue. Two trends that I expect to see in the long term are, of course, international efforts to cooperate. Uh, you know, between governments in setting compromises um, in terms of you know the use of information, but also an increased role for private actors. And here I don't mean, you know, commercial actors or the private sector. I really mean things like communities of researchers or, or, or members of industry, communities of researchers, members of specialized industries in defining privacy standards applicable to their sphere of activities. And, and the reason for that is that, you know, it, it's a highly specialized endeavor to understand the privacy risks associated to a particular category of activities. And you can't realistically solve that one through an omnibus law, even if every country were to buy into it. You do need, you know, actors that really understand a particular kind of scientific data or data processing activity to weigh in on that. This brings us to the end of the 14th episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. Please go to the website antibodysociety.org to get more information about our sponsors. If you have any comments or questions, drop us a line at onair at aircommunity.org or tweet using the hashtag onair with to us. The contact information is in the show notes. Thank you so much, Alex, for taking us through the complex world of data protection. And yeah, I'm still overwhelmed by all that information you provided, but thank you. Thanks again. So we'll return in one month's time with more thoughts on the clinical use of air sequencing. Thank you everyone for listening to On Air. Bye-bye now. Thank you for having me.